Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is August 30th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is The Squid Protocol. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Suchi Dada. She is an assistant professor and director of research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at NYU Grossman Long Island Hospital Campus. Welcome back to the SGEM Suchi. Thank you for having me back. I'm super excited to be here. Well, you you were on the SGEM back in 2021, so a couple of years ago, talking about gender inequity in the House of Medicine. Can you give us a brief update? Has the problem been addressed and solved? Um, uh, sadly, not quite, but we've definitely made a lot of progress and in no small part, thanks to the all the gender equity champions out there like yourself. Well, this is the last show for season number 11. And I always tell people when they ask me, what's your favorite show? And I always say the one I'm working on, but this will be the last show of the year, the best show of the year, because it is saving the best for last of season 11. And it was another great year on the SGEM with the addition of PEDS EM superhero, Dr. Dennis Wren. But I have some exciting news to cap off the end of this amazing 11th season. Suchi, you are going to join the SGEM faculty as part of the SGEM hot <laughs> <laughs> off the press team. Oh, I hope your partner, Neil, is super jealous. Well, Neil is your self-proclaimed biggest fan, so he's definitely a little jealous, but I think he's mostly super pumped to be a skeptic in law. Well, welcome to the SGEM hot faculty. Let's get into this final episode of season number 11. Give us a case. Okay, so you have a 28-year-old male who has a history of type 1 diabetes who's coming into your emergency department with increase in his thirst and lightheadedness. He's otherwise healthy. He comes into your triage and they check his blood glucose and it's 489. And his VBG shows an acidosis with a pH of 7.21. Electrolytes show an anion gap of 21. The patient's symptoms begin to improve after you give him some IV fluids, about a liter of normal saline. And then he tells you that he's had multiple such, quote, diabetic emergencies in the past, and he usually ends up in the intensive care unit on a drip. He's wondering out loud to you, hey, doc, do I have to go back to the ICU strapped to an IV pole? The flow nurse has similar questions for you and wants to know if she should clear out a bed in the critical care bay so that the patients can have appropriate nursing requirements for an insulin infusion. Your resident is biting at the chomp to go ahead and sign off on that DKA insulin order set. And the ICU attendings' spidey senses are going off. They're on the phone asking you if you already have another admission for them on this busy day. Because it's fine if you do, but they just want you to know that the ICU is kind of full and the patient will likely be boarding in your ED for a bit, aka hours, before coming upstairs. Just as all this is happening, you notice how the waiting room is blowing up and you can hear the sirens of approaching ambulances becoming louder. You take a deep breath. And you think to yourself, let the squid games begin. 
Oh, yes. Just another normal day in the emergency department. A day that ends with Y. <laughs> now, I should clarify, though. You did say the blood glucose at triage was 489. I don't want some of our listeners who use millimoles per liter to freak out. That converts to 27.2, so a high glucose level. With that clarification, Suchi, can you give us some background information? Sure, Ken. DKA is a common yet potentially fatal condition that we see in patients with type 1 diabetes. It accounted for roughly 8.9 ED visits per 1,000 adults with diabetes. It results in over 500,000 annual hospital days with an estimated annual hospital cost of over $5 billion. Now, if you're going to join the SGM Hop team, Suchi, I need to train you to when you're using terms like billion, you have to put your pinky finger to the corner of your mouth and say <laughs> it like Dr. Evil, five billion dollars. You got it. <laughs> All right. Despite how common and expensive the management of DKA can be, we've only looked at it once on the SGM. That was surprising when I looked back through our catalog. Now, that episode that we did cover DKA was the practice-changing randomized control trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Pekarn, otherwise known as Dr. Nathan Cooperman, from the Pekarn team for pediatric DKA. Now, in that trial, they reported that the type of intravenous fluid, whether it was half-normal saline or normal saline, or the speed of infusion didn't really appear to make a clinically important difference. That was SGM 255. That's right, Ken. And because of the complexity of care around managing DKA, the typical approach is an insulin drip with ICU level of care for all degrees of severity. Increased resource utilization around this can prolong ED length of stay, especially in the context of a busy hospital or a global pandemic. However, over the last 20 years, there has been a burgeoning evidence that fast-acting, subcutaneous insulin analogs could be a potential treatment option for mild to moderate severity of DKA, including a 2016 Cochrane Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. If proven to be safe and effective management strategy, this would eliminate the need for things like an insulin drip and opens new options for the management and disposition of DKA patients from the emergency department. Yes. So using fast-acting subcutaneous insulin could streamline care in the ED and decrease the length of stay in the department. This reduction in length of stay is desirable for many reasons, including overcrowding, prolonged wait times, and the availability of ICU beds for other critical patients. All right, we've we've given a case, we've set the table. What's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on the final SGEM podcast of season 11? AKA the best SGEM podcast. So our clinical question for today is, can a patient with mild to moderate severity DKA be safely managed with subcutaneous fast-acting insulin analogs on a non-ICU floor with blood glucose monitoring every two hours and ultimately decrease ED length of stay. Ooh, the SGMers want to know. So what's the reference? 
Our reference today is Griffey et al., The Squid Protocol Subcutaneous Insulin in Diabetic Ketoacidosis, Impacts on ED Operational Metrics, published in AM August 2023. And since we're recording this in August 2023, it is a hot off the press article. So let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? Sure. The population were non-pregnant adults who are 18 years or older, presenting to the ED with mild to moderate or MTM DKA. And they had a number of exclusions, and I'll throw those in the show notes. How about the intervention? The intervention was the SQUID protocol, which is sub-Q insulin and admission to pre-designated floor. And what did they compare it to? They compared this to MTMDK patients who received traditional treatment during intervention period, MTMDK patients who received traditional treatment pre-intervention period, and MTMDK patients who received traditional treatment pre-COVID. So a total of three total cohorts of patients who received the traditional treatment versus our intervention. All right, so let's go through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? So their primary outcome of interest was the impact of the SQUID protocol on ED length of stay and ICU length of stay. And secondary outcomes? The secondary outcomes that they measured was fidelity to the protocol, which was defined as the ability to monitor with Q2H blood glucose monitoring, and safety, which they defined as the need for rescue dextrose for hypoglycemia. And the T of the PCOT, what type of study was this? This was a prospectively derived quasi-experimental pre-post study done at one urban academic hospital in the USA. All right, everybody knows this is an SGEM hot off the press episode. <laughs> so it's my pleasure to introduce the lead squid, the big squid. Uh, his name is Dr. Richard Griffey. He's a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He has a long-standing interest in patient safety and quality, including adverse event detection, health communication, ED operations, evidence-based imaging, and implementation science. You see how I speed it up through that, Suchi? I don't know if this guy sees patients. Now, uh, Rich serves on the editorial board of AEM, that's Academic Emergency Medicine, as a reviewer for several major journals and has held multiple leadership roles in the American College of Emergency Physicians Safety and Quality Infrastructure. His work is funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and by the Foundation for Barnes Jewish Hospital. Richard, I'm sure you see patients. Welcome to the SGEM. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic myself, so I'm very pleased to be here. Well, where do you find the time to do all this stuff? I mean, that was a big intro. You're, you're doing a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of gray hair, so yeah, I'm pacing myself over time. So, Rich, we just talked about the SQUID protocol, and perhaps you could walk us through the algorithm. We'll put the protocol in the show notes. Sure, happy to. The SQUID protocol is pretty similar to a you know, standard traditional protocol for DKA and uh, begins for us with a question at triage uh, as to whether the patient's diabetic. And if they respond yes, then they have finger stick blood glucose checked. And if that's greater than 300, you'll have to convert that for me, Ken. <laughs> then they have point of care ketone testing. 
And if that's greater than 1.1, then that's a patient who is at risk for DKA. And that fires off best practice advisory BPA in our EPIC EMR. And there's a, a BPA for nurses to protocol some labs, including a BBG and some other tests. And uh, there's a, a BPA for physicians alerting them that when, you know, when they sign up for the patient that this may be uh, a DKA patient, there's currently a prompt to uh, initiate some fluids. So once you uh, have back some labs kind of giving you a sense for severity, then you can decide whether the patient is appropriate for the squid protocol or whether they should be on a traditional IV protocol. Um, and so that's listed in the, you know, along with the protocol that you'll put in the notes there, but it basically comes down to your pH and your bicarb. So if uh, we do look at you know, blood glucose across the board will be about the same. Um, you know, everyone's going to have a, a glucose of greater than 300. But if you're less than seven or your bicarb is less than 10, then that's someone who's in severe DKA and really is excluded from our protocol and should be managed on a drip and go to the ICU. Whereas patients who are in mild to moderate uh, DKA uh, may be eligible for squid. And as you mentioned, Ken, we have a number of exclusion criteria, and those were mostly built around uh, safety. And I guess we can talk about that uh, in a little bit. All right. So just to uh, review there, then the severe DKA patients had to have a plasma glucose level greater than 300. And I, I, I was told there'd be no math, but that's 16.6 millimoles per liter. Okay. So 16.6. <laughs> and then severe was a pH less than seven and a bicarb level less than 10. So those people who had a high sugar, low pH less than seven and a low bicarb, those people were excluded. Everybody else was considered mild to moderate and a candidate for the squid protocol. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. And just to you know, be nerdy about it, if it was driven by whatever the you know, most severe value was. So if your pH is less than seven, but your bicarb is greater than 10, you'd still be considered severe. So any of those then? Yeah. All right. Now, you know, the burning question I have right now is which came first? You guys coming up with the squid name <laughs> for this study or the Netflix series? I, we beat the next Netflix series. We were really? Yes. Oh, okay. So who came up? Uh, do we credit you, Rich, for coming up with the squid? Because it's brilliant. I own that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You've got to get t-shirts made or something. Oh, they're, they're already produced. Their t-shirts are very popular and squid socks. So uh, people who successfully uh, participate in, uh, in managing someone on squid can be eligible for a squid t-shirt or socks. Uh, we currently have a, a separate study underway, a related study, and it's a, a reward for responding to some you know, satisfaction questions. So is this going to be Squid 2.0 or Squid Season Number 2, which is coming out soon? You know, we didn't go with two. We went with Squiddy. Squiddy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. The, uh, the EE stands for Expansion and Equity and Experience. So those are additional metrics we're evaluating. Well, Suchi will like the equity there, won't you? I am an equity fan. What can I say? 
All right. So you've taken us through the squid protocol. And again, brilliant name for this. Just give us a refresher. What were you doing before the squid? What was your traditional approach to DKA patients that came in? We went through the severity. We didn't really go through the whole squid. So, you know, um, for both the squid and the traditional groups, they'll get fluids um, initiated and then they'll have insulin initiated. And for the squid group, that is subcutaneous uh, insulin, fast acting, you know, Lispro, um, that's given. And we give that at 0.2 units per kilogram. Every two hour finger stick glucose or any kind of glucose checks, which is one of the criteria that keeps people out of the ICU. So if you need hourly checks, then at our facility, that mandates that you go to the ICU. If you have two hour checks, it's kind of like six minute abs, you know, you go to the floor instead of the ICU on this protocol. So you continue to have your finger stick blood glucose monitored every two hours. And there's an algorithm to follow uh, titrating the insulin. And then similar to a traditional protocol, once your glucose is less than 250, you have dextrose containing fluid added back. And once your gap is closed, then you come off of insulin and you're given uh, long acting glargine. And at that point, the paths, whether you're on squid or whether you're on a, a traditional protocol, those merge. So that kind of describes the both the squid protocol and our traditional IV uh, protocol. And, you know, our work in this area really started first with just trying to come up with a standard DKA protocol and getting everybody on, on board and having everyone do it the same way. Um, and that was in response to you know, some issues we found where patients would go to the floor and their gap would open back up, that kind of thing. Um, and then once we did that, that led to the ability to, you know, take on things like squid. So I'd like to clarify one thing in there, Rich. You talked about the squid protocol being 0.2 units per kilogram subcutaneously. So that was in the squid protocol, but that was not the dose for your traditional protocol. I don't want people to get the idea that you're using 0.2 units per kilogram of regular insulin per kilogram. Is that correct? I think it was 0.1. That's correct. And also we step back. We, once you get down to 250, we step back from 0.2 to 0.1. Oh, okay. And it was a bolus of 0.1 unit per kilogram once intravenous with no maximum. And then you would start a 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour drip in the traditional DKA protocol? That's correct. I, if I'm not mistaken, um, the whether you give a bolus or not is up to the user. I, I don't think we require a bolus. And some people have strong feelings about that one way or the other. But um, as part of our traditional uh, algorithm that's not mandated for the study. Have to look. Back. It may have been mandated for the study. So. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll put both protocols in the show notes so people can go through that in detail. But thanks for taking us through it. And let's get to the conclusions. What did you find when you implemented Squid? How did it compare to uh, your traditional model? Yeah. So um, subcutaneous fast-acting insulin analogs for the treatment of 
MTM severity DKA is effective with equivalent safety to insulin drips and is associated with decreased length of stay in the ED. So I like that your your conclusions from the abstract itself were the length of a tweet, or I shouldn't say tweet anymore. And Suchi may not know this. There was an artist formerly known as Prince. Are you familiar with that? And then he came out with a symbol. And so I, I always think of that when I'm talking about Twitter <laughs> yes. these days. There, there was Twitter, the, the app formerly known as Twitter, and now is a symbol X or something. But I do like that your author's conclusions were really succinct. All right. So let's go through the quality checklist for observational studies, Suchi. Did this study address a clearly focused issue? I think it did. Number one, does the SQUID protocol decrease the ED length of stay when compared to the traditional route? Number two, can MTM DKA be managed on a non-ICU floor with Q2H blood glucose measurements? And lastly, is it safe? So, Suchi, do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer those questions? Um, I think, uh, I don't think completely so, no. The study would have been stronger if there was better randomization of patients to the squid versus the traditional treatment of DKA during the intervention period. But then this would make it more of an interventional slash experimental and closer to a RCT, and it would have needed more rigorous consenting process. Yeah, so they can answer their question about associations because this is a retrospective design. But if they want to talk about causation, right, they would have to do a, a proper or traditional randomized control trial. And, and that's just one of the limitations of the study design that you go forward with. And every study has potential um, strengths and potential weaknesses. Do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? I think so. For an observational study, it was. All the patients were questioned at triage about if they were diabetic, and if they answered yes, their blood glucose testing was performed, and if it was read as high, then point-of-care ketone testing was prompted. If this came out to be positive, then additional labs were protocoled, including a BMP or a basic metabolic panel, whole blood potassium, and a VBG. Then they assigned these patients to the two different protocols, intervention versus control. But like we said before, this process could have been randomized a little bit more logically to decrease bias. Do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? I think so. And do you think the outcome was accurately measured to minimize bias? Yeah, I think so. And have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Not all of them, no. Do you think the follow-up of subjects was complete enough? Yes, they were all followed up to completion of stay in the ED. And this is a fairly subjective question. How precise are the results? Fairly precise. Do you believe them? I do. I believe them enough to agree to change my own practice. But uh, with the caveat that this change in practice has to be something that's adopted across the hospital. So in order for it to be effective, hospital-wide buy-in and policy changes would be required. Interprofessional education around this topic would have to be executed. So it sounds like you could apply this to your local population, but do you think it can be applied to the local population? On this question, I'm still a little unsure. This was a single-center urban academic setting with a pretty diverse patient population, it sounds like. 
The results, therefore, can be generalized to many local populations, definitely to mine. But it's difficult to say what the applicability of this is to more rural and resource-deprived hospital settings would be. So like where I work, resource-deprived. Yes. In other words, yes. absent. <laughs> uh, did the results of this study fit with other available evidence? It did. And I really think that Rich did a really good, effective job at addressing the position of the study in the context of other existing studies. All right. Final question. Where'd the money come from? So Dr. Griffey was supported by an R1 grant from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. All right, let's get into the results here then. They included 177 patients with mild to medium severity DKA. And of this cohort, 76 were admitted to the intensive care unit. Among those admitted to the medical floor, 73 patients were managed with the SQUID protocol, and 28 were managed on an insulin infusion. A total of 27 DKA patients with prolonged boarding in the ED were treated on their respective protocols and were ultimately discharged home from the emergency department. Yes, 27 got their entire hospital <laughs> stay from the emergency department. Why is that not a surprise? All right. For historical controls, they identified 163 mild to moderate uh, severity DKA patients in the pre-intervention period and then another 161 patients in the pre-COVID period. And I'll put a table in the show notes that has all those details. But let's just get to the key results, Suchi. What'd they find? So the key result that they found was that the ED length of stay was statistically shorter in patients treated with the SQUID protocol as compared to the traditional protocol in historic controls. Yeah, so their primary outcome was to look at the median ED length of stay and ICU admission for SQUID versus uh, their comparison, which was the traditional method. So when they looked at SQUID versus traditional during the study period, what was the ED length of stay shortened by? So they found that for the SQUID protocol, patient length of stay was decreased by three hours, and this was statistically significant. Now, they also compared the SQUID protocol versus that pre-intervention period, was that also a shorter length of stay in the emergency department? You bet it was. It was found to be 1.4 hours less, and this was also statistically significant. All right. And how about when they did it in the pre-COVID, BC, before COVID times, I call it. I don't call it pre-COVID. <laughs> I call it BC, before COVID. So did they find that the SQUID protocol was effective in shortening the length of stay in the pre-COVID cohort? They did indeed. 3.6 hours shorter length of stay, again, statistically significant. Yeah, so it looks like it shortens the time period by a couple of hours, two to three hours. Um, how about the ICU admission rate across that? Although it does seem to have decreased ED length of stay and we were able to get the patients out quicker, it doesn't seem like there was a statistical significance in decrease in ICU admissions for these patients. All right. Well, they did have some secondary outcomes. One of them was fidelity. How closely did they follow the protocol? Were they good at following the protocol? They were pretty good. Fidelity was measured as, quote, high, and it was limited to tracking frequency of blood glucose measurements with the goal to measure at Q2H or longer, and they achieved this goal. And we can't just look at the potential benefits like getting people out of the ER quicker, which I think is a benefit. We also have to talk about safety. And I know that was really important when they were developing the protocol. Is this safe, you know, to put people on a nice non-ICU environment and getting these Q2 hour blood sugar checks? So how about safety? Did they find any safety concerns? 
Not really. I was actually kind of happy to see that the study found no difference in safety between the squid and traditional pathways. And how about that rescue, giving them some dextrose? So it turns out that rescue dextrose was administered to only two patients on the squid protocol and one on the traditional pathway. All right, those are the key results that we went through. Let's talk nerdy because you know what? I love talking nerdy. So we're going to ask Rich five questions. You should know this by now, Suchi. We're going to ask Rich five questions, and I'm going to lead this one off. So it was an observational study. You state this was a prospective-derived, quasi-experimental pre-post study. Another way to describe this would be an observational analytic study. The semantics really don't matter to me because I think we can all agree that this wasn't a randomized control trial, randomizing people into squid versus a traditional protocol. So what was the thought behind, hey, let's just do an RCT? I I guess we never really entertained an RCT, to be honest with you. Um, We had looked at the literature here, and actually I think we'd done a, maybe even done a journal club on this at one point. And we felt like the existing data were fairly compelling for efficacy uh, in using subcutaneous insulin. And so this was really more of, you know, if I could do it all over again and had a lot of money and, um, and the, uh, and the methodology existed, because honestly, I think when we conceived of this, a type one or type two hybrid design wasn't really uh, as common or in vogue as, as it is, today, um, and this is just a few years ago, but just how that's moved. So there were a number of reasons why we really didn't pursue an RCT. Um, I think the first is that we weren't trying to demonstrate efficacy. And the second was that this was really more of like a proof of concept for feasibility. We had kind of a, it was kind of a heavy lift just to identify a spot on the hospital floor where we could treat patients with DKA, uh, you know, a non-ICU uh, destination. And in order to kind of sell this to the hospital, we really wanted to be conservative. And we started with mild to moderate patients and used conservative dosing, like less than what was um, published in the Umperez paper from, uh, I think he's at Emory, where they use, you know, 0.3 per kilo dosing. So we were trying to, uh, you know, get our our nose under the tent uh, so that we could make this successful and expand expand the protocol. So we did end up finding an inpatient observation unit where we, you know, would admit these patients. And the other consideration here is that, you know, as you saw, we had uh, a number of patients who were in the squid protocol, and then we had a bunch of patients who were admitted to an ICU. If we had looked at, if we had taken all the mild to moderate severity patients and halved those to randomize them, our power would have been really low or our study would have been really long. So uh, those are probably the main reasons why we didn't pursue an RCT. I'll say that the fact that I'm here talking with you about this is, uh, you know, proves that it was successful, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not an RCT purist. I know there are some out there that are an RCT purist. We can get information from all types of study designs. And so this was a, 
hybrid type study design. And, you know, there's stuff in there that's really useful and really informative. So it's not a criticism to say, hey, why not? It's just a why not? Why did you do it? Why did you not do it? Uh, to figure out where, where the thought process came from. But thank you. So the second thing we wanted to talk to you about, and you're probably going to get tired of talking about this, is the differences in the patient populations in the two different cohorts. So because this was not an RCT like we just talked about, you can see the difference in the figure that's in the show notes in the demographics between the cohorts. So the squid patients were 6 to 12 years younger than their comparison groups, and it was also a 40-60 male-to-female split for the squid group compared to the 60-40 split for the control groups. So while post hoc adjustments can be made, this indicates to us that there are obvious measured differences between the groups and likely other unmeasured differences too. Sure. This kind of goes, you know, as a nice segue from the RCT discussion. And uh, that is that if you were trying to measure uh, efficacy then I think that differences in populations would be more important. But in our case, where you're really just looking at ED length of stay as your primary outcome, none of that really matters, right? I mean, your none of those differences impact the outcome, right? So whether you're, you know, whatever your age is, whatever your race or gender is, none of that really impacts, like, you know, if, if you are assigned to one group or the other, the ED length of stay. So, you know, the, the main, um, you know, the, the, the main bottleneck is A, are you on a drip, right? Are you on an IV drip and you're having to wait until that gap is closed before you can get the patient to the floor? Or are you waiting for an ICU? And in which case you're excluded from our study, right? If you're going to an ICU. Or are you able to go straight to the floor because you're on a protocol that allows for you to receive subcutaneous insulin, you throw our finger stick checks, and go to a designated spot on the floor? So there's really nothing uh, in the differences uh, in populations that, that impacts that. I guess that would be my response there. I mostly agree. What I've learned is that things come up to our clinical decision into our gestalt that we may not be aware of, and they can be either conscious or unconscious. So if I've got a 45-year-old versus a 57-year-old, it may impact the length of stay in the emergency department. I don't know. And so my response would have been, I don't know, but I, I agree with you. It's probably or likely not impacting, but I, I would be cautious to say no impact because I just don't know if it has zero impact. Sure, that qualification is fair. Thank you. But if you if you had a if you have a, a more complex patient, right, who's excluded from squid, and they may require additional imaging, additional consults, additional laboratories, and things that might prolong their stay in the ED, I would counter that the time you spend, depending on the severity, but you know we're talking about mild to moderate severity, uh, the time you spend in the ED waiting for your gap to close is probably equally long or is probably the right limiting step rather than those other things I just mentioned. But you're right. It, it probably, right. 
Probably, yeah. Common ground there, probably. It's just I really try to avoid, if I can, the absolutes of no, never, always, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So when you, when, absolutely. 100%. Always. <laughs> yeah. No, just when you said it has no impact, I'm like, oh, well, I, I don't know. It could. totally agree that you're probably right, and it's likely not having an impact. Agree. All right. So question number three. Eh, it was a small study, relatively. Um, when looking at the primary outcome, only 177 mild to moderate severity DKA patients in the study period with 78 squid and 99 traditional cohort to compare to some historical controls as well. Uh, making things more difficult to interpret was that 27 DKA patients. Oh, you can see my voice dropping off. 27 DKA patients had their entire management boarded in the emergency department and discharged directly home. This does not help us answer the question of whether it's safe for these people to be treated on a medical ward or an inpatient unit if they weren't. It is a small study. I mean, I guess all studies are relative, but it, it is larger than any of the studies that was included in the Cochrane um, evaluation. So, you know, I, I think that's meaningful. Uh, the fact that patients were, so many patients were discharged from the ED, again, um, did not really limit our ability to evaluate their ED length of stay, but with the caveat that you know a lot of our uh, a lot of our results are going to be blunted by boarding, right? So if if a patient's on squid and currently and even during the study they could the as soon as you put them on squid you can put them in for a bed right to the floor. Um, that doesn't always happen, but you could do that. And, but let's say that you did do that and there's no bed available. So that patient waits around and waits around just like any other patient. And they may even conclude their entire stay in the ED. So that would really blunt our effect uh, in looking at, at, at squid compared to, uh, you know, a, somebody who's on a drip who's going to be there for a long time. And so, yes, it, it would impact our ability to look at the safety or efficacy of care on an inpatient floor if that were our main, you know, if that were our main objective. Yeah, it's just a sad commentary on the current state of emergency medicine more than anything else. We're not doing that as much now. And, you know, by, by the way, like uh, prior to COVID, we would have six to eight DK patients a week in RED. And of those, about two thirds were mild to moderate. And that number dropped off during COVID and our ICU admissions were all wonky. It was very difficult. There were, you know, during the different waves, different things occurred. And so that's why we included this additional cohort of, you know, pre-intervention and pre-COVID to try to you know, adjust for that a little bit or, or control for it. But, you know, there were some wonky things that happened uh, in the last few years. Oh, there were. So the fourth thing that we wanted to talk to you about, Rich, was that you properly conducted a power calculation aimed at the primary outcome of ED length of stay using a one-sided Mann-Whitney U test. And you also appropriately recognized in your limitation section that the study was not powered for safety. So perhaps a friendly amendment would be to say that you did not find a statistical difference rather than saying there's no difference. 
that there was a difference in the two-point estimates, squid 2.7 versus traditional pathway 3.6. And that's just me being pedantic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I will uh, gladly accept your friendly amendment to our language. Um, You know, we, we, uh, we wanted to make sure for a number of reasons that we were looking at safety. I mean, it's a primary area of interest of mine. Um, And we certainly did not want to put anything into effect that we thought was unsafe. And sometimes it makes you nervous when you have a a larger patient and you're ordering a pretty large dose of Lispro, right? So you're not, you know, because our drips are pretty mild. I mean, the, the quantities, but you can give someone a, what feels like a pretty whopping dose. Um, and mostly because we were chicken and conservative, we, you know, we used the point two and stepping down a point one rather than point three, stepping down a point two, which is published. And we've also put a cap uh, for the total dose at 24 units, which again, sounds like a whopping dose. I hope to never give that, you know, we do put that in just for safety. The safety events we did observe were things like uh, mostly happened on the floor, and they were like where the 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 nurse following the protocol forgot to start the dextrose containing fluid in a timely way, and the patient became hypoglycemic, or uh, they you know there was a failure to give glargine. Uh, in a timely way, and so someone might open their gap back up. Again, those were rare events, and we didn't observe more with one than the other. And frankly, they could have happened with either uh, because they're not unique to the protocol. So we didn't see any episodes where you gave someone a dose of Lispro and you dumped their you know, sugar and they had a, a bad outcome or something like that or required rescue dextrose. It was these other things. No, I like it that you uh, did uh, make sure that you focused on safety because uh, often we'll see protocols put together and results uh, presented with only one side of the coin. You know, uh, what was the uh, what was the potential benefit as opposed to the potential harm? So it's always great to see safety robustly looked into. Well, if you want to kill your protocol really quickly, uh, have a couple safety events and this would all go away, right? (laughs) All right. The fifth and final question. This is about external validity. We need to remember that you excluded patients with comorbidities, concomitant acute medical illnesses, pregnant people. Suchi, do you have anything to say about that? Because I I get annoyed when pregnant women are excluded from research protocols because we need more research on pregnant women. I think it was fair to exclude them from this particular study, but perhaps with the caveat that we should have more studies on pregnant people, especially ones that can potentially decrease their length of stay or save them ICU admission and let them go home to the comfort of their house or, you know, other kids at home. So. And then the final thing was that uh, there was uh, some subjectivity with the clinician saying, you know what? I think they're too sick for the floor. This really narrows down the study to who it applies to. These are the mild to moderate, no comorbidities, no concomitant illnesses, put them into DKA and, and they look good. You know, at the end of the bed, the clinical gestalt was, yeah, they can go to the floor. 
Another correctly self-identified limitation of this study was the location. It was performed at a single urban academic center in the USA. You mean America. You got it, Ken. So although this is very similar to my practice environment, it could be very different for others who listen to the SGEM or perhaps are the SGEM. How would this apply to other, other urban centers, community hospitals, critical access hospitals, and other healthcare system outside the USA is quite unknown. I'll uh, clarify first that, you know, we didn't exclude anyone with comorbidities, right? <laughs> uh, that's fake news, Ken. You're allowed to have comorbidities, but you couldn't have, I mean, but, but we were aiming for relatively uncomplicated DKA and patients really had to be suitable for an observation admission because that's the destination they were going to. So I don't know a better way to, I mean, that is a inherently subjective call, but you know, it's, it's one that I think you get right with 80% certainty. We did exclude pregnant patients. We did exclude patients where you were concerned for an MI, if you had a concomitant serious infection, like if you were septic, um, if you had altered mental status, and then if you had things like end-stage renal disease where your clearance of insulin was a concern and uh, congestive heart failure, end-stage liver disease, active use of immunosuppressants, those were all exclusion criteria. But, you know, you were allowed to have other things that really didn't impact your status as a pretty straightforward DKA patient. And since this study... Now that we have a, uh, an opened this up to a regular medicine floor, the non-observation admission, we have expanded our criteria. So you know, we really still don't want someone who needs to be in an ICU for DKA or non-DKA reasons. But if you don't have that, you're pretty much eligible for squid at this point at, in our facility. You know, there still might be... A, a few other, like, I, I think for pregnancy, that may have just been a, a you know, unexplored uh, area in prior studies. And so we stuck with that. Yeah, probably the pregnancy was a standard IRB requirement. Um, I, I find that that's just a rubber stamp. Yep. Exclude pregnant women. And thank you for clarifying, you know, excluding comor patients with comorbidities. I could have been much more precise when I said certain active comorbidities yeah. and they are listed in the exclusion criteria. So thank you for calling me out <laughs> on that uh, because we want to be as accurate as possible. So it was certain active comorbidities that would exclude you. Um, but ap apart from that, um, I mean, I, I think our, you know, a, a, as you mentioned, our facilities, not unlike many other places. Um, and I don't see any reason why uh, you couldn't apply this to, to your site. Well, what you mean is other large academic sites in the sure. U.S. because I've been to Barnes & Noble. I mean, Barnes Jewish. And it is one massive, like, I mean, what's what's your inpatient? You, that's about a 1,000? 
about 1,100. 1,100. Okay. So there are places that don't have 1,100 people in the whole town. One of the hospitals I work at has 19 inpatients, two orders of magnitude less and no ICU. So, you know, from a critical access hospital, it'd be like, I, I remember driving up to uh, Barnes Jewish Hospital with Chris Carpenter the first time and this huge, massive brown structure rises on this hill. And it's like, <laughs> oh, and I'm like, that's where you work? People come to our hospital and go, oh, which floor is my loved one on? And I'm like, you see, there's, there's only, only one, one floor, floor here. There's just <laughs> one. Well, we do have a basement, but there's only one floor, you know. So anyways, um, yeah, that's what that's where this question really came from is how can you really apply it to, you know, some places yeah. have very strict rules about, you know, there's only ICU and there's only the floor and there's no step down units and stuff like that in other urban centers and community hospitals and a critical care hospital or sorry, critical access hospital doesn't have anything like you guys have yeah we we don't have surprisingly any step down neither do we you know it's part of what necessitated the study but but people have pointed out to me that you know what we have the same problems in our intermediate care units that we do in our icus where if you're in dka and you're mild to moderate you're just kind of not sick enough to qualify for our unit and so you know are the Results of this study immediately, you know, uh, generalizable to to your ED can no, but is the protocol generalizable? I think it probably is. Oh, I'm bringing this back to my hospital. Oh, I'm no, I'm squid in our hospital. I'm going to cover it. I'd love to say with ink because then it would go with squid, but it'll be digital ink. I'll be sending some emails. So, Rich, is there anything else you want to say about your study specifically? So the squid study or just the topic in general? Sure. I guess just because we're talking about, you know, generalizability, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, it's a team sport and it's critical to have partners on the inpatient side, both, you know, for us, they were hospitalists um, and, you know, they, they were great collaborators with us. And then also I would really encourage, uh, you know, if you have them having a dedicated space, because it's important to remember that since we really don't take care of decay on the floor um, and it's really just taken care of in the ICU and in the ED, a lot of floor nurses have either never seen, or it's been a very long time uh, that they've ever cared for a DKA patient. And so all of a sudden you're dropping this patient on them and they've got, you know, three different fluid orders and three different insulin orders. And the way that that's the output of those orders through an average EMR is just gobbledygook on the other side. And while these protocols are great because they sort of let us cognitively offload and it, it, a lot of that shifts over to the nurses. So, uh, you know, we did do nurse training on the floors to go through, you know, how these patients are managed. And so, you know, you don't want to drop one of these patients on this floor and one of these patients on that floor, um, or certainly not without uh, some some training that you feel confident about. I love that answer, Rich. I love talking about everybody being on team patient. It starts with patient care and it ends with great patient care and having everybody on board. And that means everyone, right? Everyone plays a role in ensuring that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. So 
Love that answer. Great way to end the nerdy section. And the floor nurses, they loved the squid protocol. They, they were eager to get more patients, um, maybe because it's very algorithmic and they had a straightforward problem that you could address. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been very popular and that really helped us expand it and, you know, maybe coming to uh, an ED near you. Are you sure it wasn't just about the t-shirts and socks? Well, that really helped too. All right. Can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions, Suchi? Sure. I think that we generally agree with the author's conclusions. We do agree with Rich and his authors. Yes. All right. How about giving an SGEM bottom line? Sure. So managing patients with mild to moderate DKA outside of an ICU with fast acting subcutaneous insulin seems like a potential alternative while more data is needed from the other sites to address efficacy and safety. And can you give us a case resolution to what you presented at the beginning of the podcast? Absolutely. So after listening to the SGEM episode on the SQUID protocol, you share your evidence with your hospitalist buddy. He agrees to accept the patient to the floor and discuss his plan of glycemic control with the floor nurse. He documents the plan per the published protocol in detail and makes sure that all care team members are updated on the plan. You reassess your patient and let him know that you are about to initiate the SQUID protocol. He gets a little anxious at first, but then you reassure him that it has nothing to do with the TV program. (laughs) You let him know that since he is young, healthy, and without any other serious comorbidities, he has mild to moderate DKA, that evidence suggests that subcutaneous insulin will likely be a safe alternative for him. He is very happy to hear this and more excited that he will not be chained to an insulin infusion All right, Suchi, so how are you going to take this squid protocol and apply it clinically then? So I'm going to consider taking this information on fast-acting subcutaneous insulin to my next EM departmental meeting to see if we can start a conversation on whether implementing the squid protocol could be an option at my facility. So what are you going to tell the patient? I would tell the patient that since they're in mild to moderate DKA, there's emerging data to suggest that this kind of DKA can be managed on a non-ICU floor using subcutaneous insulin shots instead of the traditional insulin drip, otherwise known as the SQUID protocol. The SQUID study suggests that since you are both young and healthy, there is a good chance that the protocol will be both effective and safe for you. There's also good evidence to suggest that your length of stay in the emergency department will be less than if we'd use the traditional route of treatment. There is a small chance that you may end up needing the ICU anyway. What would you like to do? Yeah, a little shared decision making there at the end. Always. It is time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winner was good friend of the SGEM, Dr. Steven Steltz. He knew nicardipine was patented in 1973 and approved for medical use in 1981. Well, Suchi, what kind of squid question do you have for this week's Keener Contest question? Oh, it's a good one. Everyone ready? So, the Keener Contest question for this week is... In the TV show, The Squid Game, what illness was the protagonist's mother suffering from? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. It ties into our episode spoiler alert. (laughs) If you know the answer to this week's Keener Squid question, then send your email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. 
the first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, Ask Jammers. What do you think of the squid protocol? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Rich and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Well, thank you, Suchi, for both joining the SGEM hot off the press faculty and doing this episode. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, you're getting into the spirit of it. And of course, we want to thank Rich for not only publishing this study, but actually setting it up, designing it, and coming up with the great name, the Squid Protocol, for his research project. And then, of course, coming on to the SGEM to share with some knowledge translation. Thanks so much for having me. Your uh, your t-shirts are in the mail. <laughs> t-shirts in the mail. Woot, woot. All right. Last thing, Rich. We need you to read the SGEM tagline. All right. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. <laughs>